0: You're tuned to the IP Communications and VoIP community in our 11th year. To produce these weekly meetings, we really appreciate the support of SimWood.com. SimWood can turn you as a developer into a telco. Our longtime friends at Greenfield Tech can make your tech dreams feasible and affordable. Go to Greenfield.tech. For eight years, we've been using the finest conference server around zipdx.com. The VUC website is on bluehost.com. Our local rate dial-ins from around the world are from voxbone.com. All right, thank you, Michael. And if that isn't a .com rebound, I don't know what is. And today we have our esteemed guest who hasn't been with us for, I think we figured, six years it's Brof Turner from Netblazer. Brof, welcome.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here. We're, we're
0: really pleased to have you. Uh, I just would like to take the time to introduce everybody in the film strip besides Brof, and everybody's going to have a chance to say hello, starting with Mr. Andy Smith. Hello. Good. <laughs> Nicely done. The next person is in Scotland, and his name is Corrado.
2: Hello, everyone. Good evening. Now we well, have good morning, the, depending on where You're
0: right. We have the impeccable James Bodie with his tie. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Mr. Michael Graves is with us. Hello from Texas. And he's the American, yeah, he's the only American correspondent Maybe. because Tim Panton is in a car, I have no video for him yet. Can you there click you that? Go.
3: Vi- Hi, it's Tim. Oh, wrong foot, wrong camera. There we get my
0: car anyway. There he goes. Look oh, at this. Hello. Mr. Tim Panton and he is not driving safety uh, geeks. He's not driving. And this is me, Randy, and uh, I'm really, really thrilled that we were able to do this. This is our 11th year. We've been doing this for 10 years, and about six years ago, this fellow, Brof Turner, who is a rebel like I am, decided to do what he wanted to do, and I'm going to call on Brof to, to to tell us, first of all, remind us what Knit Blazers is about and what they're doing, and uh, the evolution, because apparently there was a turn of events uh, a few years after they started. So let's hear about the history of that, broth.
1: Okay. Well, um, uh, your your illusion that uh, the origins of things, basically I was pissed off about broadband in the United States. Um, in the early 2000s, I was uh, engaged in, in what was then uh, natural microsystems and later uh, NMS communications. But in 2008, uh, I was no longer in control of things and the company was... Uh, split up and sold off, and I was at loose ends. Um, so I sat around, uh, did some consulting, and thought about things. And really what I wanted to do was to find a way to do an end run around the broadband monopoly in the U.S. And uh, I'm perceived as being a wireless expert, which may or may not have been true at the time, <laughs> but at least I gave talks on wireless-related things and, and 3G and 4G wireless Uh, So I concocted a plan and I recruited a partner, a couple of partners, and we started off in 2010 uh, in Boston uh, looking to use a combination of a limited amount of fiber and a lot of uh, high speed point to point wireless links to deliver broadband uh, Internet access, high speed Internet access uh, to people in the greater Boston area. Uh, Well, of course, you do a startup and things are you're naive about a bunch of things. And in my case, uh, I had enormous amount of theoretical knowledge of wireless, but uh, not so much practical experience. So uh, we we struggled with technology in 2010 and early 2011, and then we struggled with business plan uh, in 2011 and 2012. But uh, in late 2012, we finally broke the code on something that made sense. We're still scrambling to develop our infrastructure, but we do have a business that is... Uh, EBITDA positive, and uh, basically we're still investing capital, but it's throwing off cash, and probably by early 2018, it will be throwing off cash, including all the capital investments we're making, i.e. it will be very profitable. Uh, And we're we're growing rapidly. Uh, On the other hand, we're not about to to challenge Comcast yet or or change the way things happen in the U.S., and that is my long-term goal. So at the moment we have uh, a little over 2000 subscribers. We're in hundreds of buildings in the Boston area. Uh, we have uh, in, in part for residential users in apartment buildings and condos, uh, we are constantly installing new buildings. So we're one of the metrics is how many doors do we pass? Because, uh, and the answer is around 10,000 at the moment, um, because those are potential people to sign up for our service. Um, So it's not hard to compete with Comcast for service in urban areas. Um, And I can talk about the technology and or the business plan. Um, We should actually actually start with
0: with what you're doing differently from others, because I think uh, that's uh, quite a difference. Um,
1: So there are people using fixed wireless technology to deliver Internet access services. Uh, there are, in fact, thousands of uh, small companies doing that across the U.S. and throughout the rest of the world, but the majority of them are in rural areas, and the majority are using five gigahertz uh, uh, unlicensed spectrum, and uh, things work fine because in a rural area, there's relatively little interference. Uh, there are relatively few people doing what we're doing, or six other companies in other specific markets uh, who are doing or are attempting to do what we're doing. Um, The difference is in a dense urban area, you've got a lot of potential interference uh, more and more all the time as the cable companies hang uh, Wi-Fi access points uh, on the poles up and down the streets and everybody and their brother has a dual band router. So the five gigahertz spectrum is very full, but that's not necessarily a problem Uh, in rural areas you're worried about what is the signal to noise ratio if you're, you're 15 miles away from the water tower where the access point is, how do you get a signal there? Uh, and the answer is you use a highly directional antenna that's, that's focused and allows you to receive a signal despite being 15 miles away. Well, it's interesting in an urban area, uh, if you're willing to use directional antennas, now you're fighting not signal to noise, you're fighting signal to interference but if I have a, an antenna with a 10-degree beam that's looking at another antenna with a 10-degree beam, uh, first thing off is I'm not receiving interference from 360 degrees uh, in any uh, – 350 degrees, in other words, from most of the rest of the neighborhood. And when I do see interference, uh, my two directional antennas are pointed at each other. And if there's some omnidirectional dual-band router in the in a upstairs apartment of a building I'm passing over – it's relatively diffuse and low level of interference. So with directional antennas, I can make of point-to-point wireless connections between... And in fact, we Ruff, now can have...
3: Can just dive in very quickly, Prof, and ask you, what bands are you actually using? You mentioned 5 gig, the 5 gigahertz unlicensed band. Is that all you're
1: using? Uh, no. No, we are using uh, 5 gigahertz unlicensed, but we're also using 24 gigahertz, which... There is 200 megahertz of spectrum from 24.0 to 24.2, which is unlicensed or license-exempt spectrum in the U.S. So we're using, uh, we have radios that use two 100 megahertz channels, one one way and one the other way. So we get uh, frequency division duplexing, full, full duplex. Uh, and we can, uh, we can get uh, 800 megabits each way over those radios. Then we also have some radios that are operating at 60 gigahertz. Those are fairly short range, like 500 to at most 500 meters to at most one kilometer. Uh, We have uh, a final kind of radio. These are all unlicensed. And then the final kind is radios operating in the 70 to 80 gigahertz range. These are so called light licensed at those very high wavelength, uh, very high frequencies. It's very short wavelength. Uh, with even a small antenna, the, the beam is very, very directional. So you get a license from the FCC for doing anything for uh, a few hundred dollars for 10 years. And then you have to register the, the endpoints of each link. And you can't put a link that exactly duplicates somebody else. But these things are so directional that we've never run into any conflicts with anyone else, uh, in the city of Boston because, well, because they're so directional, um, So, were I to try and. So, so basically, we have four different kinds of radios we've qualified now from uh, three different vendors, and uh, we use them at at a bunch of different price points. The five gigahertz stuff is the least expensive. The 60 gigahertz stuff is the second least expensive because it's also, you know, the five gigahertz is leveraging mass market Wi Fi silicon with custom Mac layer and, and higher level protocols. The 60 gigahertz. It turns out because of 802.11 AD, uh, there are Wi-Fi standards for 60 gigahertz, and there are now two silicon vendors who are manufacturing Wi-Fi silicon at 60 gigahertz. And as a result, there are now two radio vendors building things into our market who have uh, taken this mass market stuff and launched products and started deploying a couple of months ago. Uh, The 24 gigahertz stuff is expensive. It costs us about $3,000 per link, $1,500 per radio and the, but, but we get a solid backbone out of that and the 70 and 80 gigahertz stuff. um, But we can get uh, um, two gigabit per second, full duplex we've deployed and we can get five to 10 gigabit per second, full duplex if we wanted it. So, There's no capacity constraints. And in terms of uh, propagation and weather, people say, oh, what happens when it rains? Um, So the answer about rain is the atmosphere is basically transparent up to about 10 gigahertz. So the five gigahertz stuff has no no weather impacts at all. Uh, Above 10 gigahertz, you begin to get uh, water vapor absorption, and it increases as you go up in frequency. So our 24 gigahertz links, um, the longest link I have is three kilometers. Uh, there's a couple of links, two, two links that are three kilometers. They go across Boston Harbor. And I may be able to shorten them to 2.5 gigahertz. But those are the only, out, out of more than 100 and 115 24 gigahertz links we have deployed now, uh, they're the only two that are over two kilometers are these two that go across the harbor Uh, They're three kilometers, and in a heavy downpour, uh, they will modulate down from full speed to from 700 megabits per second to maybe 200 megabits per second. So three kilometers or less is doable. Two kilometers or less is completely reliable at 24 gigahertz.
3: Okay, that is very valuable information to know because there are very few people actually doing this out there today. I think you're, you're blazing the trail for everybody, Ralph.
1: Yeah. And we have a lot of of uh, very specific experience with, you know, so 24 gigahertz link. If you're willing to pay three thousand uh, dollars, you can go, you know, 10 miles in the desert. You can go two kilometers in in uh, northeast U.S. Uh, ITU rain zone K.
3: Yeah. And then in UK, you'll probably do do about 300 yards, you know.
1: <laughs> no,
2: no, no, um, no, I'm no, I'm no, just, no you're
3: actually... Uh, uh, yeah, in Scotland, forget it, no, Corrado, you're not... No, no,
2: we're doing... Uh, we have a dual link, point-to-point-to-point to, point to, point to serve a rural location that is completely off-grid, of everything uh, and we have two links that are about two miles each, so about three kilometres on the five gigahertz. On five gigahertz? Yeah. At five, at what... Sorry? Five gigs. Five gigahertz, yes.
1: At what trick? Oh, yeah. Well, at 5 gigahertz, you can go 20 yeah. miles. You know, there, the atmosphere is transparent at 5 gigahertz, Absolutely. so there's no weather implication. That's why we gigahertz. use the frequencies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just out of um, interest, are you well,
3: using any kind of... What are you using for antennas? Can you use any kind of active beamforming technology in there?
1: Uh, we certainly could, and that's a whole separate thing, I, uh, which I could talk about, independent of, of NetBlazer's primary business. Um, I have a a consumer deployable radio that doesn't have to be aimed because it does active beamforming and i've actually managed to get the u.s national science foundation to give me a series of grants which are now uh, a little shy of a million dollars that i've frittered away over the last five years government and we have some prototypes of something that kind of works.
3: and just on cue i just happen to have have one here. This is uh, the thing yeah. called a YB, uh, manufactured here in in UK, um, yeah. with, which has got multiple antennas. They're phased. And you can get about ooh, 10, 15 dB forward gain from this. But more importantly, uh, it reduces noise. And that comes in a little yeah. weatherproof enclosure. And you just whack that up or, or on top of a vehicle. Um, yep. and, you, and it can operate mobile, which is great.
1: Yeah, yeah. that's... that's uh, it gives you antenna gain, and uh, in some environments that might be useful for signal to noise, but in most places what you're worried about is signal to interference, and that antenna gain directly gives you gain yeah. over the interference.
3: Yeah, the ability to not- notch out the noise is hugely useful.
1: Yep, yeah.
2: So, I know of a vendor that has uh, developed a, a, a ring that you put around the dish uh, that is enclosing the dish, so it's being, for me, it's directing the beam at, uh, even more directionally than just the, the, the single uh, dome at the back.
3: So it's a super-focused yeah. yeah. dish.
2: Yes. The, yeah. the, that's augmenting the dish to reduce uh,
1: susceptibility to interference to, to side loads. Side. Yeah. 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 In fact, uh, one of our radio vendors is Ubiquity. It's a yeah. you know, fairly large company now and uh ubiquity is actually you know a bunch of aftermarket products showed up to do these sorts of things with the ubiquity radios and ubiquity is gradually getting to the point of introducing these technologies directly into their product line
4: yeah slowly we love those Uh, guys yeah lots of that product around here have have tremendous experience with it and the company
3: well come on name some names what's really good and hot broth yeah because that's what everybody really wants go on don't be shy
1: well uh, you know, the the 24 gigahertz radios are ubiquity air fibers. Right. Yep. fibers. Uh they're not cheap, but they are uh, they're, they're actually built by a development team. that acquired from Motorola before Cambion bought out the Motorola assets. And that team has produced a much more professional radio, if you will. <laughs> uh, but it's not based on Wi-Fi silicon and therefore uh, it's more expensive. Uh, so we, we're using uh, Ubiquity five gigahertz stuff all over the place. We're using Ubiquity's Airfiber twenty fours. Uh, the sixty gigahertz radios are from IgniteNet, an Israeli startup. They're called IgniteNet MetroLink. Uh, they come with two different sizes of antenna. The smaller antenna, which is about nineteen centimeters, uh, allows you to establish a link that's up to perhaps five hundred meters. And the larger antenna, which is 35 uh, centimeters, allows you to establish a link supposedly up to a kilometer. I, my longest link right now is about 700 meters, and I don't have a lot of experience. We have uh, maybe three or four months' experience. The, and, and it was a rocky start. The first five radios I bought, that is two links and a spare, uh, had all sorts of problems. This would be a year ago. And they were only finally fixed after IgniteNet did a complete hardware ECO and we returned everything and they basically gave us new equipment. Uh, but since that happened four or five months ago, uh, everything has been working very well. So they definitely had startup problems. They um, have three links deployed and two more going in this week. Uh, so we won't have a base of experience for another six months or so. Um, and then in terms of the... Uh, 70 and 80 gigahertz product there are actually about five vendors in that field uh, the two that i have some familiarity with are Siklu, an israeli company and bridgewave uh, i'm not sure where they're based u.s i think and we're currently uh, deploying sicklu two gigabit radios uh where we where we need the extra capacity um and again i don't have a lot of experience there but we're scrambling. You know, as I say, our, our backbone right now is principally uh, air fiber 24 point-to-point links. And the way we set this up, uh, the network has, there are seven places where we're buying upstream connectivity from one of three fiber providers. And then there are hundreds of buildings that are interconnected. We have a dense mesh of point-to-point links and every building that we deploy service in uh, we try and get a site license that allows us to put three or more radios on the roof. So we have a router and three links going in different directions. So there's at least two paths to every building. So if a building goes out, you know, not everybody is connected directly to fiber. In fact, most of the network is is uh, one, two, or three hops away from fiber. Everybody has at least two paths back to uh, to fiber. And there's uh, crossover paths so that if a fiber goes out, we can move a network onto a different, a different fiber connection, with the BGP handles that. Um, uh,
2: so you've effectively created a mesh using point-to-point links instead exactly. of exactly. So it's, it's a, a point-to-multipoint.
1: The the a lot of people use. I mean, I'm using mesh in the mathematician topological sense, yeah. not in yeah. common, uh,
2: common
1: me- you yeah. Know, not a mesh network we don't have any omnidirectional antennas anywhere and everything is operating on different frequencies and uh it's clearly we're trying to have a dense topological mesh of point to point ethernet connections between routers in every building
3: yeah that's going to lead on to the question how do you present the service to the end user
1: ah typically as an rj45 jack uh, where you make a gigabit ethernet connection and uh, we provide uh, whatever we are, we can provide, which depends on the building. Uh, in the vast majority of buildings, we're offering 300 megabits down, 300 megabits up for $59 a month. Well, i sign uh, up
3: immediately, bro You know
1: that. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, well, you know, no contracts, no no funny escalation. You know, uh, no no strings, no, no funny business. Uh, no strings, no, no wires even. <laughs> every month and so forth. Um, a lot of the we, we also have a 500 meg 500 meg service and we're going to be testing out a gigabit symmetric service in the next three months, um, capacity radios and, and so forth. Um, basically uh, there are some uh, one, once we get to a building, if it's a multi-tenant building, uh, you know say an apartment building or a condo or a commercial building with with multiple businesses or one business that's willing to pay a lot of money, <laughs> Um, uh, then we, we, we put the three or more radios on the roof. We run, uh, they're all power over ethernet. Uh, we have typically, uh, microtik router and a Natonix POE switch located, uh, somewhere in a telco closet on the upper floors or in a mechanical room, somewhere near the roof that's powering the radios. And then we wire vertically down through the building with cat six ethernet cable, and we put switches and deliver service in a kind of conventional fashion to people over whatever wiring is in the building. And that's now, if the building has been built or remodeled subsequent to 2002, it's highly likely that it has category five wiring and we can get a gigabit connection to the subscriber's room and deliver whatever we can deliver. It was built in the 90s through 2001 or 2002, it probably has category three wiring into the from the from the telco closets into the individual apartments uh category three wiring was rated for 10 megabits but if you've got short uh, that's over 100 meters uh 330 feet if you've got short runs uh you can reliably do 100 megabit ethernet over cat3 and sometimes you can do a gigabit over cat3 if it's 50 feet or less
2: if it's well twisted Uh, so
1: well, Cat3 is what it is. I mean, it's, it's twisting was designed for 10 megabit Ethernet over 100 meters. It was not designed for whatever. But in fact, for short distances, it does work. So we can pretty reliably in apartment buildings and condos that were built or remodeled in the 90s, we can offer 100 megabit symmetric service and uh, do that over the existing building wiring. And we just tell the the either the apartment manager or the condo board, Uh, You know, this is what we can do. Uh, If you want to upgrade your wiring, uh, we can give you, you know, 500, 500. But meanwhile, we're offering a 100, 100. And we've actually had individual condo owners who have paid to have cat six wiring put in from their apartments to the central toco closet. So there are buildings where uh, different people have different grades of service due to uh, that's a condo in an apartment building. Obviously, it's uh, the apartment owner has to decide whether they're going to do that or not. And finally, we don't do this often. We can run over legacy telephone wire using VDSL 2 plus uh, profile 30A. Uh, and that will allow us to get 100 megabits symmetric over phone wire for realistic distances within the building. So we put a D-Slam in the basement and we jumper things to people's telephone connections and we put a little box See, across us each uh, in the subscriber unit. So there's basically, I I mentally think of this as $200 of extra cost for the installation. Uh, We don't seek out buildings which don't have modern wiring, but when the occasion arises, or for example, in one case, it's a 22-story apartment building in a location where we could get fiber, and it was a beautiful retransmission site and so we said, sure, we'll do 100, 100 meg and, and, and goes, whatever extra. to the roof. <laughs> capital, if we can put 12 radios on your roof. And they said, fine. So we have a, a fiber head end, which has only DSL speeds inside the building. <laughs>
4: yeah. so. how, how about when it comes to brown, brownstones? Because some of, your, uh, some of your marketing indicates that you go down to uh, your individual family residences. And how are you able to deal with them?
1: Okay, well that we don't do uh, 100 megabit stuff. We we offer 50 megabits. Originally, back in 2012, we were pushing 15 megabits, and we do that uh, basically anybody who is within a thousand meters, or I say 800, but our sales department seems to say a <laughs> thousand, of a building the rights to put extra and uh, extra aerials up. What we do is use. Uh, things that are designed to be uh, relatively high-gain point-to-point radios. But with a slight, we basically take a 30-degree beam and we create the equivalent of a point-to-multipoint sector that's only 30 degrees wide, and we use DFS frequencies at 5 gigahertz in 20 megahertz bandwidth chunks using Ubiquity, uh, either uh, M series or more recently the AC series. Uh, and we can get, you know, 50 megabits to people. Uh, we only, uh, we typically relatively few people per sector. The max is, uh, is 15, and it depends on what the actual utilization of, of people are. The statistics are not as good when you're concentrating 15 thing as when you, if you can concentrate 100 people onto some upstream, if you have enough capacity to do that, The statistics of any one person out of the 100 all averages out. When I have an apartment building with 120 units, uh, if we give them all 300 meg service, I know that on average uh, during the residential peak time, say 9 p.m. till midnight, 120 or 125 megabits coming out of those 100 users or I'll see 1.2 or 1.3 megabits per user, because you know, some people are watching Netflix and even in HD, that's only a few megabits per second. Some people are, are uh, browsing the web, but they, they hit advantage of 300 or 500 megabit service is not that you need it all the time. It's that it gives you low latency when you want to browse the web, but he's browsing the web. Bang. They get the, the page hits real fast because they got a 500 megabit downlink, uh, But if I look at their average over an hour, uh, they're running, you know, one or two megabits per second. And then, of course, some people look at their average. So if I can aggregate 100 people with 300 megabits service, I know that all I need to do to guarantee that anybody who runs a speed test will see 300 megabits, for example, uh, is I need 300 megabits of headroom, uh, whatever is the peak of the actual usage during the busy hour or the busy three hours, nine till midnight. So a building with 200 people in it, if I'm seeing 250 megabits of traffic in one minute averages from 9 PM till midnight, as long as I have 550 megabits of capacity at that building, anybody who does a speed test will see 300 megabits. So the statistics work really well for 200 uh, users. When you've got 15 users on an access point, uh, 15 yes. is subject to a lot more statistical variation.
2: Yeah. Uh, Brov, uh, sorry so. to interrupt you, but uh, I've uh, just had, well, a couple of days ago, I had uh, an update from Ubiquity about a new release of the AROS uh, software, the AROS firmware, with the GPS sync feature. Well, that helps a lot against uh, latency problems and, and that uh, people that uh, install that have reported exceptional performances.
0: So how
3: does that work? The main, how does that work? Do, well, the, the,
1: the, the main thing that GPS sync gives you is when you have uh, multiple radios on one rooftop uh, and they're using time division duplex, that is, they're, they're transmitting part of the time and they're receiving part of the time you would like all of those radios to be transmitting at the same time and receiving at the same time. Because even if you've got a spectacular antenna with a 50 dB front to back ratio or a 60 dB front to back ratio, if you are transmitting 80 dBm and receiving at minus 70, that's a 90 dBm ratio, a 90 dB ratio and your front to back rate is only 50. is going to be, blowing up the other guys nearby if they're on the same frequency. If they're on nearby frequencies, you've got some filter advantage. But even there, it's very easy to overpower that are within 10 or 15 feet. So the the great advantage of GPS were it to actually work, and Ubiquity has been promoting this, and so I'll believe it when I actually have units running, <laughs> uh, is that I can put a bunch of units on the same rooftop, on the same channel, 30 degrees apart, bing, 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 and actually use them. But I don't have experience with it actually working yet. So I'm hopeful. No, yeah. Okay. Next little question
3: is now you've built this marvelous hybrid network. How do you manage it?
1: Okay. Well, that's uh, that's a work in progress. Uh, We started out years ago with a bunch of – with a mixture of – uh, a a, a micro ticks program called the dude uh smoke ping which is an open source uh um very good project. i'll describe the one a moment so uh, has and- been
3: said that this is the latvian the dude as opposed to the dude right. Um, right. from the asterisk community. we,
1: we have, right yes and but we have abandoned that now what we are using now as of a year ago and it's working extremely well uh is something called NetXMS. Uh, basically, we're running a Net NetXMS. Uh, we have maps of our entire network, uh, probably uh, 90 separate submaps that are indexed and connected and so forth uh, to cover the, uh, the thousands of devices we have out there. Um, NetXMS does polls of every single device uh, once a minute and accumulates... Yeah. Many, many uh, tens and hundreds of gigabytes of data, bytes of data in the last year. Yes. Uh, Basically, it's
3: open source, too, as Andy quite rightly points out.
1: Yes, it is. It's open source and there is support for it. We're not currently paying for any support. We're just using it. Um, And we have integrated that. It it has a very much more robust than MicroTix the dude, Aner, which when we deploy new devices, within two hours and then somebody just has to drag to a map and indicate and correct you know if if the you know a couple of minor fiddles and it's part of the network and it's being monitored and we're accumulating snmp data Uh, we have standard templates for uh, each of the devices. I'm still uh, amending the template for the my, the IgniteNet radios, and I'm just starting on the template for the Ciclu radios, but basically there's a template, and when it discovers a new thing, uh, it tests the SNMP against the template, and if it matches, it picks the right template okay. and applies that and starts collecting data. So I'm guessing
3: that you're uh, contributing your templates back to the open source community.
1: Um, we have in one case, uh, most of the stuff, we haven't done anything really unique in most cases, uh, but uh, yes, in principle, yes. <laughs> and in practice, to Because extent, I'm
3: just thinking how useful all that stuff would be to lots of people like Corrado.
1: Yes. So, so then the other thing, so NetXMS is our discovery tool, our SNMP monitoring tool, our mapping tool. Uh, it's kind of the central thing. And then uh, in, in, as I said, we have seven different fiber feed points. Those seven head ends, I have a ping server, and we're running an open source program called Smoke Ping. It's a burst of 10 pings every one minute to every device, obviously sequenced out so as to distribute the load on the ping server. This is a beautiful graph of the, uh, the mean of, or I don't know if it's a mean or the median, but basically a midpoint bar, and gray smoke above and below on this gra- graphical representation, representing the uh, the longest and the shortest ping. And this is a wonderful um, leading indicator of interference or other problems, because radio is subject to interference, it starts to do retransmissions at the radio frame layer, which is below the MAC layer, below the IP layer, and not seen by most of the normal data networking tools. Yeah, By smoke... Ping as additional smoke because the ping variation changed. So, smoke ping is an invaluable tool, is a distributed smoke ping network with seven seven separate ping servers, one at each head end, uh, because I don't want, I have tunnels between head ends and a pile of other kludges which go through the public internet, and I don't want those latencies confusing me over what's happening in my network. From NetXMS, you can right click on any device. And that you get a bunch of choices. And one of the choices is to access the device. And I've just augmented those menus to include a direct hook to retrieve the smoke ping graph for that device, which hooks you into the smoke ping server in the right place for the right thing. So my distributed smoke ping network, centrally from the NetXMS monitoring program.
3: So typically, so, what do you, Timothy, what, 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 what you do? Ooh, nasty noise. What do you do if your links do get a bit smoky?
1: Well, I'd like to tell you that I have automatic alerting. I don't yet. Uh, but um, basically, if we're getting smoke, then it very much depends on what the link is, and somebody needs to go and, and diagnose that. Gigahertz uh, point to multipoint, then it's probably interference. If it's a five gigahertz point to point link, it may be interference, it may be something else. If it's a 24 gigahertz link, then I go back and I look at signal levels. and I look at other things. Uh, It doesn't happen often, but I had one last week and uh, it turned out that this installation crew did an installation without a plan that had been reviewed or approved by anybody. And they slapped up a new air fiber radio on a roof that already had an air fiber radio, so they were both transmitting on 24.1 and receiving on 24.2. So that's cool. Are unfortunately less than 10 degrees apart. So the other end, you know, completely invalid something or other. And now they've installed a business customer who's moved in and is pulling 100 megs more <laughs> or less continuously during the day and screwing up the the condo that with uh, with 35 or 40 and 120 person building. Uh yeah, you know, that's just a QC screw up on our part. That have, yeah. Right. So the answer there is, uh, the new link is extremely short way down, uh, so that we've dramatically reduced the interference on the condo that was the, the established condo that should never have been interfered with. And, uh, we're going to replace that link with a different technology that's not operating because, you know we don't have a different path and, and so forth, so could be all sorts of things. This one was we shot ourselves in the foot and we need to re engineer the uh, the second installation so it doesn't interfere with the first one, right? Anyway, Jay
3: Carpenter, who just popped up there, the postage stamp of Jay, there has got a, a penetrating question apparently. So go ahead, <laughs> go ahead, Jay.
5: Actually, two, thank you, thank you, James. So I have two questions. One is, have you, and I think you're project is really, really cool. I love the the idea and the, the intention of it. And have you looked at optical links at all?
1: Uh, yes, I've looked at optical links. And I have also mentored to a limited extent, a an interesting guy in Slovenia who is uh, uh, building a 100 meter extremely low cost, uh, supposed to be 100 euros. I think it's about 300 euros right now. <laughs> We
3: actually had him on the VUC about a year ago.
1: Okay. Okay, good. Uh, Yeah, I'm very interested. Uh, There's been nothing that's been uh, affordable and and directly relevant. Uh, The vast majority of our links are under uh, two kilometers. A significant percentage are under one kilometer. And uh, a small number, you know, 10% or something are are under 100 meters. Uh, not, Not a lot of really short things. So... So, you know, it comes down to I, I'd love to have a 10 gig optical link, but I'm not going to pay you know, 15,000 bucks for it. Uh, if I can put in a uh, if I can put in something that costs me, it, it gives me the two gigs or the four gigs that I need for for 7000 bucks or can give me uh, something just under one gig for 3000 bucks. So I'd love to see an optical device that made sense. And I keep looking. Do you have any ideas?
5: Well, I, I guess I was looking for a comparison and contrast uh, between your you know, radio architecture and the optical architecture. It sounds like you're looking at both. Is it basically just distance and cost that are the considerations now?
1: Yeah, it's, it's absolutely. It's, uh, it's cost and performance. All I'm looking for is to use wireless ways of providing an Ethernet connection between two routers. I have a router at every building and I want to put ethernet connection to a bunch of other buildings. And I get that ethernet by having a radio bridge. And if it's an optical bridge, that's cool. Uh, it's purely a matter of, uh, cost and, uh, performance and, uh, reliability as, as we learned with the ignite the first generation of ignite Red radios. Um, so Good. I would drop in an optical link that made sense in a heartbeat or in a month or two while I tried it out and got the, everything working.
3: Yeah, excellent. Name, Thank you. The name of the, uh, the outfit we had on was Caruza, K O R U Z A, uh VUC619 on November the 11th 20, 2016. So not that long ago. Right, right. And that's
1: an extremely interesting thing. I don't have uh, I don't have that many uh, links that are uh, 100 meters. So I don't have a lot of, of need for that product.
3: Yeah. but, um, but they, they're game, g- claiming lengths of up to 10 gigabit per second up to about 150 meters so building to build, building perhaps but yeah, yeah.
1: that's that's what I'm interested in and i I met uh, uh, Luca oh in Berlin in 2012 or at one of the battle mesh or or some, some event uh, maybe five years ago when he was uh, I think still an undergraduate or maybe a grad student in London and I've been you know, sort of giving him email support and introductions wherever I can. For I haven't actually talked to him in about a year, but I was trying to be very, very encouraging because it sounded like something I could use. Uh,
5: so we haven't. Used so uh, you just mentioned something that I think is very interesting. Uh, did you attend Battle Mesh that just happened? Uh, what a month ago or so? Uh,
1: no, I haven't. Uh, see, se- separately, I, I alluded to earlier this uh, this project that's. Um, for which I've gotten various National Science Foundation grants, uh, that's to develop something which would be used in limited mesh networks uh, installed by uh, non-professionals, by consumers, if you will. Uh, And I've attended several different uh, Euro mesh networking events um, in 2010 and 2012 and so forth when I was uh, working on the early versions of that both to talk to people and, and get connected to the community. So I follow these things remotely at this point, but uh, because NetLaser, the service business, has been growing so rapidly that I'm barely scrambling to keep up with the infrastructure and the monitoring tools, uh, the NSF-funded uh, development project hasn't turned into the business I'd like to turn it into. Uh, the idea there is to develop something that a consumer could hang in their window, which would be actively steered, automatically steered, so it wouldn't require any aiming, it wouldn't require access to the roof, it could be installed with no truck roll, uh, and it worked at uh, available frequencies, which were only 5 gigahertz when we started in 2011. Um, If you put a large steerable antenna in a window at 5 gigahertz, it's going to be quite substantial, like uh, 30 40 50 centimeters wide uh, so the other criteria was it needed to be transparent and that's what i got the national science foundation to fund uh, we have actually managed to build uh, uh, a very interesting transparent antenna technology that has it behaves within 2.5 db of a pure copper antenna in terms of performance uh, but turning this into a into a part into the antenna piece of a larger project and slow-going because I haven't been paying much attention to it.
4: When you say Other. transparent, is it actually transparent or is it sort of a mesh construct? Uh, or? The,
1: material, the material we're using uh, is actually uh, clear plastic with 20 micron-wide silver lines in a 300 micron square grid. So unless you get a magnifying glass... You can't see this. When you get up really close with a magnifying glass, you can see that it is 20 micron silver lines in a in a square mesh, uh, providing the conductive material. Now, there's a bunch of issues associated with using this stuff to actually uh, propagate signals and which way how it works and it's but its RF performance uh, is is different than what you would think in terms of its DC performance. But it, of all the various things we we tried better than indium tin oxide and so forth we uh, as i say we've we've got demonstrable uh, antenna arrays with uh, with limited beam steering uh, working and the antennas uh, they're their are multiple patch antennas uh with fed by transparent transmission lines the system is about two to two and a half db less efficient than if we'd made it out of out of copper on uh, on a good dielectric, This is, uh, it's funny material on Lexan. And, uh, some of the compromises are,
4: excuse me. Yeah. That's just fantastic. That, 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 I, I could see that if available would be widespread.
1: Well, there's a long way to go from a research demonstration funded by the National Science Foundation to a product. Uh, for example, uh, Lexan is not a controlled material. So, uh, you know, I, I made, project, I bought a vast amount of lexan from one batch so that I would know that the dielectric constant would be the same over the next three years, (laughs) (laughs) measurable product. So there's a whole set of issues to get from a research thing to an engineering prototype to a production prototype to a product that's actually maintainable in the field. And right now we have a million dollars of Federal money, well, nine hundred and twenty thousand of federal money and eighty thousand or a hundred of our own, plus countless hours of our own time. Uh, but we have some demos of the technology. We don't have a product, and it has been on the back burner compared to new business. Uh, but the business. But the motivation is still there. Do local neighborhood installations. It's one thing to do buildings with fifty or a hundred or two hundred doors. Uh, it's another thing to do brownstones or or assorted buildings that have only a few, one or more, one or two or three residences per building. Uh, Each one of these requires a truck roll, and today it requires an antenna on the roof, which is subject to weather and means you have to get landlord approval if you're renting. Um, So the idea of being able to hang something in the window, connect together six, eight, or ten people in a neighborhood and only have two truck rolls to provide two different feeds to this cluster of six or eight people uh, that dramatically cuts down the cost, and you, you can think about uh, same sort of thing that that Google thought of. I actually was promoting ten, you know, five years ago, eight years ago. Uh, you have promotions where if, uh, six or eight people on your block or within view of each other are willing to sign up as a group, bring uh, you know service to your neighborhood. All you have to do is X, Y, and Z. So. You know, it's a uh, it's it's a very interesting concept. I don't currently have the budget to turn this into a product or the time to go and raise the VC funds to do it. Or, in fact, the team that I could sell to VCs. But it's it's in the back burner. And uh, I was thinking of what's my next step. I need to resolve that before the year is out. Okay, Um, bro.
0: James, forgive me. But um, go, go. just a quick, no, Prof, um, and I had some technical difficulties earlier. So if this was covered, I apologize for bringing it up now at this late date. But I know that the United States is a very peculiar and particular atmosphere to do these kinds of things. And I was curious to know whether you would like this sensitive issue, but whether you'd like to speak to any legal or uh, community challenges that you're faced? Um, because it seems that it's, in, in a sense, one's hands are tied for this kind of thing of providing internet. So if you have anything to say on that level, we'd love to hear about that.
1: Um, well, we're in the US, so we're in better straits than a lot of countries.
0: Well, compared to, say, um, I happen to be in France, but in uh, your UK, uh, in Europe, there's a There's a, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word, but the point is there's a lot of competitive, um, uh, in other words, the people who have the monopoly on the infrastructure for the internet are obliged legally to share it. Whereas I know in the US, for example, in New York City, uh, we've heard that people who have tried to set up Internet in their building for reasonable costs, high speed, have had challenges. So I I just was trying to get you to speak on that and whether there's a problem in Boston, whether you... But understanding that you not necessarily are able to comment specifically... No,
1: no, no. I'll I'll comment on anything. Hell. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, certainly, Boston has Verizon... Phone wire and an enormous number of those buildings have Verizon fiber, even though Verizon does not offer their so-called BIOS service in the city of Boston or Cambridge. Uh, but there are a limited number of buildings. So, so there are you know, hundreds of thousands of buildings that have connections from Verizon percent of them, all the residential ones and many of the commercial ones have connections from Comcast. Uh, there are a couple hundred buildings that have connect- fiber connections from other carriers like Level 3, or Light Tower, or Zeo or you know, competing companies. These are typically only that have had cell sites in them, or buildings that are uh, business towers. But there are a few hundred locations in the greater Boston area where there is competitive fiber available. And my three upstream providers uh, you know, one of them is Light Tower, one of them is RCN Business, and one of them is a company called Excelex. None of these guys are at places where I can get access and run radios. And so I'm not dealing with uh, British Telecom. Uh, I'm not dealing with OpenReach. Uh, I'm not dealing, you know, I'm basically buying internet transit at some building that's not even at a data center. I'm, by the way, I'm not paying for rental at a data center or paying cross connect fees or anything else. I'm buying internet transit stations uh, in greater Boston and talking BGP upstream over that thing. So that happens to be the best deal. And that's repeatable in most of the top 50 cities in the US, including New York. So there are selected locations in New York where I could get. Uh, fiber from a variety of people, including Light Tower and Level Three, and so forth. A deal that's compelling to the building owner, where I can uh, get roof rights without having to pay rent. Uh, then I've got a jumping-off point for for a wireless network, and that's what we're doing.
0: Okay my you know, my my question was so, really based on whether there was impediments put in your way by some uh, local or whatever governments. Because I've heard that it's, it's not that easy. Whereas, just to repeat, in this country, what's happened is that we, the taxpayers, have pretty much paid for the infrastructure. But then there was a one company who had the monopoly, and as a result, they were forced to share, both in, in the sense of cable and 4G, by the way, LTE, they were forced to be able to allow people to resell. And, and, and I think that's the key to the fact of why we pay, in this country, we're paying less than $20 for an incredibly good internet connection. Yep. Um, whereas in the United States, if you, t- if you go to some pl- part of Oklahoma or Texas, or particularly uh, in the mid- middle of the country, Minnesota, whatever, um, it just seems like the lack of company, Comp- competition has made it very difficult. And so that was the basis of my question.
1: Yeah. No, there's absolutely the case. The the reason the U S service sucks is that we have monopolies it Used to be the phone company. And at this point, viably, it's really only the cable company because the phone wire is really, really obsolete. Right. Uh, so basically there's a cable monopoly and the U S has not, Forced any kind of either structural separation or even operational separation, uh, so none of that is available to me. So I am working around that. That was one of the things that I was extremely pissed about that caused me to start. Uh, you know, but you, uh, we're, you know, my thought was to do a wireless-based end run around the monopoly, and that is possible. We're doing, but it does mean uh, one advantage is we don't have any competition because. What's the competition? It's Comcast. And at the ratings on social networks, on Google, on, on Yelp, or whatever, uh, NetBlazer has a five star rating. Uh, Verizon has 1.5 stars. And uh, Comcast has one star because you can't rate lower than one star. <laughs> and that's actually a rough. Know, so, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so it's not hard to compete in the US because there is, you know, and, and it's, it's still a terrible thing. And my regret is that I don't have. Millions of subscribers doing as yet. That's the long-term vision: is to find a way to do millions of things and just bypass the the broken U.S. public policy.
0: Right. Okay. Uh, Corrado is, has a oh yeah, that's readable now. Corrado, can you comment this for us because it was for Broth to show him uh, one of your links. It's your link, so I'm showing. I'm showing. Yes,
2: exactly. Yeah. Go ahead. It's one of the one of the links we have uh, in the, in the two leg link uh yep. that we we, we used to broadcast uh a simple fiber to the cabinet connection from one uh urban location to a rural location uh it's not even optimized but it's the, the capacity is about 200 megabits per second you can see that uh and and uh, the distance is about 1.5 miles as you can see from yeah from here and they have they've been running for forever uh one terabyte of traffic going through as you can see uh reliability 100 percent, never gone down i'm touching wood right now right, right while i speak but uh we are entirely happy with these devices and they they saved the business that's
1: an extremely familiar picture <laughs> because uh, we have a bunch of that stuff too so yes mm-hmm. absolutely
3: Corrado, uh, can i just quickly ask you just to scroll up a bit so we can see the, that matrix at the bottom. And, uh, and that's showing the, the 64-way QAM, um, the scatter diagrams. And that looks pretty clean because you can see there are little groups of shot falling within the grid. Which
0: what means are these it's, amoeba that we're seeing? <laughs>
3: so that, that's what I'm trying to explain badly. So this is
0: a 64-way QAM,
3: quadrature Amplitude Modulation. It's
2: uh, here. 64 QAM, yeah. 2, two by two.
3: Yeah, and... Um, and,
2: reception. and when uh, it, every single square is a, a group of bits and bytes that is being sent at the same time.
3: And when it's nice and clean, you end up with these groups of... They look like shotgun shot um, falling in the middle of your, your grid square. But if it gets noisy, then that, that grouping of shot spreads Scuttles. out, uh, yeah. and it just then the whole thing uh, uh, struggles to uh, determine w- what signal and what's noise. Um, but anyway, that's a good, good e- example. An illustration of 64-way uh, QAM uh, in Operation Live, and I think it's brilliant. And, and, and the cost of these things is, is not vast, is it? It's just no, a couple of absolutely. hundred quits.
2: Can I point you out to another thing that I'm highlight- highlighting now?
3: Oh, yeah, the average latency is zero milliseconds.
2: I, that is where, how?
3: How? Well, I I, I don't <laughs> well, I
2: understand even, how that uh, can
3: be, because uh, as whatever. Scotty used to say, you can he beat the laws of physics, and you're going to have a little bit of latency somewhere.
2: Yeah, it's the speed of light. The Yeah,
1: the, the latency. I mean, besides the speed of light, there's also packetization, you know, frame delay and whatever, serialization delay and so forth. But
2: that is the latency or, between the two
1: uh, the two devices. Right, right. So my my thinking is, if I've got less than a hundred megabit connection, I'm going to have a millisecond latency per hop. And if I've got uh, you know wow. less less than a gigabit, you know seven hundred, eight hundred, whatever, I'll have three hundred microseconds per hop. And those are just rules of thumb. But the point is, the extra latency of somebody being four or five hops away, milliseconds grand total, uh, it's mm-hmm. not material compared to everything else. So mm-hmm. latency isn't an issue in this network.
3: Yeah. interestingly enough it's a uh, it's a growing business in radio based links now because uh, propagation with a radio wave is uh, the latency is lower than uh, propagation through a fiber yes and so if you if you've got a city dealing system and you can shave off the odd millisecond here or there that means millions of dollars um anyway that's a good lead-in because i know jay's got another question about satellites and i, and I think it's We're probably going to see it off with uh, um, by saying crap latency. But go ahead, Jay.
5: Yeah, that's kind of what I was guessing since we're talking about latency and we're talking about, let's say, alternative networking uh, topographies. But I was wondering what what's your opinion on satellite linking? And uh, yeah, (laughs) but uh, do you see any improvements in there? And, and you know, there are some experiments with with, uh, high altitude drones that are going on? Uh, have you looked at that at all? Uh, I've just followed, you know, the, uh,
1: the various announcements of yet another satellite uh, system and so forth. Um, certainly a low Earth orbit satellite or drones at 60 or 70,000 feet or blimps or something possibility. And, uh, you know, certainly certainly a, a geostationary orbit satellite is hopeless. That introduces a quarter second of delay. Uh, And you excuse me for moving, but uh, my computer battery is running low, so I've just moved to a slightly noisy area. Uh, uh, I'm very interested in Google's balloons. uh, What about Facebook's
3: project Arquila, which um, is actually designed and built about 30 miles away from where I'm sitting at the moment? British technology.
1: All right, all right. Um,
3: You don't know about that one, do do you? Basically... in summary, it's, it's a solar-powered uh, aircraft which flies at around 55,000 feet, so yeah. above the the air traffic um, yeah. with a mission life of about four years. So you put it up, just yeah. goes round and round in circles.
1: Yeah, so that's entirely viable if they can get the economics to work. Uh, you know, the, the distance, I mean, it's not – that's going to introduce some latency. Uh, you know, 50,000 feet, uh, round trip is 100,000 feet. But, you know, the speed of light is pretty damn fast. So, yeah,
3: but compared with a geostationary orbit, which is, what, 176,000 kilometers or whatever out, um, it's tiny.
1: Yeah. yeah, it's a nanosecond per foot. And uh, so what's uh, the 100,000, you know, 100,000 nanoseconds? So it's, it's yeah. a millisecond and, or whatever. And it,
3: if nine. I had to choose between uh, Google balloons, Project Loon, or uh, a Facebook um, solar-powered drone with a life of four years, I would go with a solar-powered drone every time, even in UK. I,
0: I feel the need to chime in here, sorry, to tell you that um, Orange, here in France, has been deploying fiber all over our city, and you cannot do 20 steps outside without seeing a truck. And so they came to this building. Now, I have VDSL, so we're, we're moving soon. We're, we're not jumping on their offer for of fiber. But our neighbor right next door... Uh, ordered orange fiber, so they came and wired the fiber into the building and wired it to their apartment. But unfortunately, there's no network connected to it. So while they connected the fiber outside in the whatever that is on the street, mm-hmm. there's nothing there, and they still haven't connect. That was a couple of weeks ago. Uh, there's still nothing connected to it. So it's ironic, you know, we're talking about satellite this and latency, blah, 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 fiber. This is fiber to the home. Fiber, I talked to the guy, fiber is coming right to their router, whatever that device is that accepts the fiber. But there's nothing on the street connecting it to the network. So they have no connectivity. Fortunately, they have their DSL, obviously. But my point is, I, well I don't know what my point is except Yeah, that, I, well, yeah, that's a bit rambly wasn't it but you you, you but you made it. Yeah. I think I think you got it. Yeah, the point is yeah,
3: that Orange France have got it, some um Project
0: managers need stacking. They do, and I won't even go into what happened when we first moved in. But my real point is, it doesn't matter what the whatever that layer of ISO is uh, that that does that, but you're either providing a service or you're not. And, Broth, you folks are obviously doing that, and who cares whether it's radio, fiber to the cabinet, fiber to the home. I don't know what it's to, but go ahead. I just think that's funny, but... You guys are doing it.
3: Uh, Yeah. Uh, At the end of the day, there's no substitute for having people who actually understand what they're doing it doing, and execute with a certain amount of passion. And I think that's what your team are all about, Bruff. You believe in what you're doing, and uh, and you just go and do it, make it work because you can and you care, and that's why you're a hero.
1: Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. All we have to do now is blow this out to millions of people instead of thousands. <laughs> and
0: how yeah, do that, we do
4: that? that, Prof? that is the question: How do we? How do we spread this to other metro areas? Do we? Does it take some sort of you know national cooperative or um, because you, you clearly have the seed of something and now we need to get it in you know yeah. Houston, um, Dallas, wherever. Yeah.
1: Well, there are uh, other companies doing things somewhat like we're doing, uh, including a company called WebPass that started in San Francisco. Uh, Google recently bought WebPass. Yeah, we a good see. sign. see. Uh, there are about five such companies um, that I'm aware of. I don't know that anyone else has costs quite as low as we have, but uh, the point is, you know, the, the, the public policy in the U.S. is so screwed up that I'm only impressed that there aren't hundreds of companies doing what we're doing. Um, so we're certainly thinking in terms of getting this to be something that could be cloned in other cities. And if we could get this uh, the infrastructure to that state and uh, clone it in one or two other places, then I'd be up for raising a potload of money and trying to go after 50 metro areas or something like that. But that's not in the next 12 months. Well,
3: <laughs> something something of, that would help would be some better spectrum because at the moment you're using license free, you know, five uh, gigs and above. No. So, no. would you say no?
1: No, I, uh, I wouldn't say that right off because the other thing we're looking for is uh, low cost of equipment. Absolutely. And that, that,
3: that, uh, that I was just getting, that's going to be my lead in for CBRS. And, the licensed shared access spectrum at 3.5 gig, um, which will be very very low cost as the mass production for CBRS type equipment kick, kicks off. Still early days yet, yeah, but it's yeah, going to be possible. very very cheap.
1: That that's certainly a possibility, and I'm certainly open to anything that ends up being commercially viable and and you know, low, low cost and and useful. Uh, you know, there's the thing that uh, there's a uh, there's a a petition before the FCC uh, generated by the, uh, by the folks at Mimosa uh, to get unlicensed access to 10 gigahertz spectrum. There's a bunch of radar bands and other things up there that are uh, mostly not used in most geographic locations, typical of most spectrum.
3: I think if you're a radio ham, you already have access to the 10 gig band.
1: Uh, You've got a a
3: secondary non-interference basis.
1: Yes, to part of it. Yes, there's at least 100 or maybe 200 megahertz of that band that's available to, to amateur radio people. Uh, the point would be to get tertiary access to, to – uh, there's like eight or 900 megahertz of potential stuff that could be available. I'm extremely attracted to that because it would be pretty damn quick. And Five gigahertz uh, Wi-Fi silicon, uh, 10 gigahertz, the atmosphere is still mostly transparent. Water vapor is just barely beginning to kick in, so you could go 10 or 20 miles if you wanted. It's double the frequency of the stuff that I'm working my transparent antenna with, which means that the wavelength is half as much, and I could get twice as much antenna for any given size. There's a lot of things that would be really attractive, and you could move pretty damn quickly in terms of making a low-cost mass-market thing just by off-banding 5 gigahertz silicon. Uh, the chances of that happening, of, the, of that spectrum becoming available, are pretty small right now. Well,
3: there are all kinds of crazy things going on at the moment. Like all of a sudden, there's this, all this discussion about um, um, radio hams doing radio ham LTE, so four G TDD in the uh, in the in the ham bands. Which you go back two years ago, that was totally you know fiction. But now it's yeah. very real all of a sudden. And things like software-defined radios, um, yeah. things like the Lime micro SDR boards and all the other bits and pieces just yeah. make it very very feasible, very possible.
0: Don't you think that uh, at some point we're going to even get beyond radio completely, though? There's going to be some kind of, if it's not, if it's <laughs> not a transponder, mental... I don't know. Technologies change, and that's just the support, the, that level... But it doesn't really matter. What we need is a way to connect. And yes. uh Well, don't you think it's
3: amazing how far we've come in the last I don't know, 20 years? Completely. James, you're a hammering. And we're running around with things like this in our pocket, which, are, oh, you know, not 40, me. 40 LTE bands <laughs> with a with an 8-core processor. It's a supercomputer Yeah. in our pockets with, with a next, well, I don't know, 500, how many gigs of memory in this,
0: but a huge amount. But radio could... Radio could conceivably be, be replaced by some other kind of energy. Anyway, the point is that that doesn't matter. Prof, we need to get you on it at least once a year. Every year. year. At Every least year. once a year. And then do it's a reality check. Reality a check, exactly. That yeah. was
3: what point. is feasible using stuff that's uh, available out there, which is cost-effective? Exactly. Uh, and, and, you know, real stuff, not, okay. not uh, experimental stuff. Okay. Yeah. And and okay. well, um, Bruff, you operate yeah. in the real world, the real uh, engineering that's
1: for sure. So.
0: Yeah. All right. Yeah. So you heard it here first. Brof said yes. That means he's going to come back within the next year. Uh, any final questions from anyone before we close this out? I'm gonna well, watch IRC. I
2: have a technical question, sure. but probably a bit uh, boring. But anyway, do you have any did you have any problem with scalability? Of, uh, so, getting more customers in, and, and how do you deal with that if you ever? Thing about scalability,
1: <laughs> uh, and we're constantly reworking, uh, you know, what we're doing both technically and then business organization, and how does the customer support work? And you know, in some sense, any startup is about uh, you've got to come up with a product or a service, but uh, once you got the business plan that's working. It's all about how do you scale it and you know, that's what we worry about every day. As I say, we're not yeah. in a position to blow this out across the country because there's a whole set of infrastructure related things that include not only technical resources but standards and training procedures and how you know whatever before you could pop it up in another city. But those are things you think about and, and uh, that's clearly what it takes to go from thousands to millions.
0: Well, we're looking forward to having you go to from thousands to millions, Broth. But in the meantime, keep in touch, and we will prod you from time to time. We're going to ping you and try to keep you uh, in our leap, loop of information. Meanwhile, I want to thank you very much for coming by, and I want to remind people that it's Net Netblazer. Let me try to spell that N B L A Z R dot Z. Thank you, Z. I said Z, but it's Z blazer blazer all right right. right. thank you you will find that thank you very much for filling in brof and uh, I'm going to make sure that it isn't 364 days before you come back okay
1: okay thank you
0: that's it you've been there you've done that no codecs were harmed in the production of the VUC IP communications and VoIP community once again thanks to these great companies for their continued support Simwood, Greenfield Tech, ZipDX, VoxBone, and Bluehost.com.